Are we good? Well, welcome to Sedaris, to this second week of Advent. For those of you who do not know what Advent is, it's no worries. I think there's plenty of non-Christians and plenty of Christians who do not know what Advent is. But Advent is, it literally means arrival. And we celebrate, we anticipate the coming of Jesus. And obviously on Christmas we celebrate His first coming. And in Advent we look forward to, we anticipate his second coming. And so Advent is really this, uh, this time of tension, really, between uh, the first coming, the first arrival of King Jesus, and his second arrival. And so we celebrate, we anticipate, we look forward to, we, re- we remember that we are people of anticipation. And the more I thought about this uh, idea of anticipation, I'm not the first <laughs> to think of this by any stretch of the imagination, but... Um, I thought about this word hope. It seems like our world, really all of us, like clockwork, we run on hope and caffeine. But mainly hope. That's right, thanks, Nolan. Hope is something that uh, seems tough to grasp, tough to keep, and without it, we are, I think, lost in many ways. I don't know if you heard the story of the Amazon employee. Uh, This was, I think it was two weeks ago. Um, Sent out an email, bad sort of criticizing email, and he accidentally sent it to hundreds of employees, including Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon. He was obviously distraught, didn't know what to do, climbed out onto the 12th story uh, of one of the Amazon buildings and jumped. Uh, thankfully, he landed not 12 stories below, but on a balcony, and he's still alive and recovering. But he was having a crisis of hope. Uh, Because his job was his source of hope. And that was in question, that was in doubt, and so to him, couldn't see past that. He couldn't see life even after the job. And many of us have crises of hope. In America, it seems, we have a crisis of hope generally. There seems to be little to no hope for racial reconciliation. We talked about that. We had the open forum, and we talked, how can we be people that, that, that help the solution and, and not add to the problem? But it seems like more and more we're losing hope when it comes to these things. I think in our country, another thing I thought of is we seem to have little hope for marriage anymore, uh, that marriage can last. This leads to people waiting longer and longer to get married, myself included, because we've sort of lost our hope in the institution of marriage and, and wonder, does it really work? And It's a crisis of hope. We have a crisis of hope in politics, Right? Uh, Does it really work? Does democracy really work? Does the process really work? And yet, politics itself preys, in a sense, on hopelessness, right? I mean, you remember, I guess it was eight years ago, Obama's campaign slogan was hope. And it's smart because he knows there's so much lacking in hope. And then we get to this year's election, and we have many people in America who have little hope. And so what we see is uh, more and more what we realize is that more than any other election in U.S. history, this is what we call a negative vote, which is that we voted against one candidate or the other. It's because of hopelessness. Many people... Uh, I think would agree that they even voted for Trump because they felt hopeless, saw no way forward with Hillary. And what's so interesting about this is that hopelessness tends to reproduce itself. And so while one or um, a large portion of the country votes uh, because they're feeling hopeless with the current direction, 
Uh, the results of that lead another group of Americans to hopelessness, and we see that. Uh, maybe we feel that in ourselves. We see that in our friends. We see that in our families even, that now this hopelessness has shifted, or probably not even shifted, it's more spread. And so like a virus, oftentimes hopelessness can move in and out and destroy people that were at one time hopeful. I just saw, if you haven't seen it, you should watch it, a SNL skit called The Bubble. It talks about, you know, the way forward is if we can just create a bubble. It's very funny. It's, for Seattleites, you'll laugh because it is our culture. If we could just create a bubble and protect ourselves from all those other people, then we'll be fine. This is a satire on hopelessness. So we have this problem, we have this lack of hope, and yet the Christmas season, Advent, is all about hope. It is really a timeless message, and it's a relevant message to us today. So what is a good definition for hope as we move forward? Here, here is one definition of hope. It goes like this, the confident expectation of the future that gives energy today. The confident expectation of the future that gives energy today. The confident expectation of the future that gives energy today. And so pregnant in this definition of hope is this idea of anticipation. And anticipation is at the heart of hope. I think uh, of vacation, and I, and I wonder, why do people love to vacation so much? Is it because they love palm trees? Is there something magical about a palm tree that sort of cures everything? I don't think so. I think what we love about vacation is the anticipation, right? Because usually for me, the first or second day on vacation, I'm already starting to get hopeless again, knowing that I've got to go back. The anticipation has ended, and so usually the second or third day, I start researching my next vacation so that when I get back to work, I have anticipation again. That's really the thing we want, and it's rooted in this hope. I've always said this, um, uh, if you've ever been to Disneyland, uh, you wait, and you wait, and you get in line, and then eventually you get to the front of the line. And you go on the ride, and it lasts 30 30 to 60 seconds, maybe more, and it's over. And you're like, wow, that was fun, but let's get back in line, right? Why? Because we love the anticipation of it. I I thought maybe I'd start an amusement park with no actual rides, just lines. Think about this. And you wait, and you wait, and you get to the front of the line, and somebody gives you an an attaboy, (laughs) And maybe get a little, you know, high five, a little, uh, I don't know, certificate of completion. I think that we've got, if you guys want to go in on this with me, I think this could be the next big idea, amusement parks with no amusement. But we've got the anticipation, tons of it, gets you right back in line. You don't have to walk as far to the different lines of anticipation because there's no actual property needed. It's amazing. Just meet in a field somewhere. So we love anticipation. It's something that gives uh, uh, meaning to our work. It gives us uh, the ability to push through. It gives us energy for tomorrow. And, um, and it's good. We need, we need to have hope. And without it, we can really uh, be crushed. Uh, another example of this uh, that I thought of this week is me and my best friend Brian. We, uh, we both graduated and went to work for big firms. I went to work for a big accounting firm called Deloitte, and he went to work for a big investment bank called Credit Suisse in New York City. Now, there were times during the year where we were both working 90 hour weeks. And we would talk, and there was a bit of a difference in our tone. And here's why there was a bit of difference. Because 
in accounting, you have what they call busy season, meaning it doesn't last forever. And so although you're working hard and, 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 and it's, it's crushing in many ways, you know that it won't last forever. So there's some hope there. There's some anticipation. But for him, if you know anything about investment banking, 90 hours is pretty standard year-round. And so he worked for two years in investment banking and never got that break. He never had hope of an end. And so our tones were different, even in the midst, even to work in the same amount, because he had no expectation of a future that was different than the present. He struggled for the energy in the day. So what are these expectations that source our hope? There's a couple of um, distinctions that I want to make before we go on. Uh, There are short-term expectations that can bring us hope, and there are long-term expectations that can bring us hope. Short-term, things that we expect or hope for this week, things that we expect or hope for this month, things that we expect or hope for in this year. Short term. Long term, these could be things that we expect or hope for in our lifetime, or even as we'll see, very important things that we can hope for or expect even beyond this life. How are you doing with your hoping? Are you hoping only in the short term? Are you also hoping in the long term? The second distinction that I'd like to make is personal versus corporate hoping. How are you doing here? Are all your hopes related to yourself? Do you only hope or expect or long for things that are related to you? Or do you hope and expect and long for things for your community, things for your city, things for your nation, things for your world? So be corporate, hoping. How's that going? Are you hoping well? The Bible gives us a paradigm, a, a path forward in the way we hope. So I want to I take a look at this. Um, we're going to look at Psalm 72. So if you have a Bible, you can start turning there, or you could pull out your fo- phone and, and Google Psalm 72. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find them in the seat back in front of you. Psalm 72, it's going to be right the Psalms are right smack dab in the middle of your Bible. So if you can open it up, you look around, you'll find the Psalms. We're going to be looking at the first uh, seven verses of Psalm 72. So as you're turning there, I, I want to just explain to you a little bit of the pattern that you see when it comes to hoping as the people of God. And again and again, what we see when we read the Word of God is that the hope that we uh, see happening is a hope for an individual, a hope for a leader, a hope for someone, a person that can take us from here to where we hope to get, where we long to get. Sometimes that's couched in the figure of a king. But not always or not necessarily. And so what we see is in the Old Testament, and this will maybe help you read the Old Testament if you struggle with reading the Old Testament. How am I supposed to understand why are there all these different stories? And ultimately what you see is somebody will come on the scene and you'll see maybe this is the person that can take us where our hope lies. And and they'll get very, very close at times, but then something will happen and they'll fall short. You see this with Moses, who delivers the people of God from slavery in Egypt. And you think, this is the promised one. And then Moses falls short, and he himself doesn't enter into the promised land. Then come along, uh, comes Joshua, and Joshua, Joshua takes them into the promised land. Yet he is not the chosen one. So you see, we're going up, drop, and we go back up, drop, and you see this. Then the judges come along, and there's several judges, and you think maybe they're the ones, and they fall short. 
And then the people say, well, we need a king like all the nations around us. And so God grants the desires of the people, and they say, fine, I'll give you a king. And the first king is King Saul, and he's terrible, and he falls short. And then King David comes along, and King David, he is a man after God's own heart. And he gets very, very, very close to this ideal, maybe David, but he falls short. And so what you see as you read Scripture, this will maybe help you understand it. As you read through it, you'll see this constant pattern of up and down, up and down. We're waiting for someone to come along. And as I thought about this, I also thought about a video that I saw um, this week by a, of all things, an NBA commentator whose name is Ernie Johnson. Um, And... Uh, it was the beginning of the NBA season right on the same week as the elections. And so on TNT, uh, their coverage of basketball, um, they have these commentators. Uh, It's a a fairly popular show. Um, And all of them got to say a few words about their reaction to the election. And Ernie Johnson, uh, cameras on him, millions of Americans watching him, and hundreds of thousands of more have seen this video on YouTube. You can look it up if you, if you want. But I'm just going to read you what he said with millions of people watching. I thought it was quite prophetic, and so I wanted to share it to show you how relate, relatable our moment now is to the way the people of Israel, the way the people of God have always felt. He said this, When this campaign season started, I felt like I'd been dealt a bad hand. I had these couple of choices. And there were trust issues with Hillary Clinton that I couldn't get past. And there was the inflammatory rhetoric of Donald Trump, which to me was incomprehensible and indefensible. I couldn't vote for either one. And for the first time in going to the polls for 42 years, I hit the write-in button and I voted for John Kasich. And I left knowing that John Kasich wouldn't win, but I left with a clear conscience because I hadn't settled. Number two, I was hopeful. I watched the video today on CNN that was going on in the White House with Donald Trump and President Obama, and I was hopeful that I was, and I was encouraged that there will be a difference between the President Trump and the campaigning Trump. And I'm with these guys, speaking of his colleagues. We have to give him a chance. But here's the deal. I just hope that he's all in, in fixing the wounds in this country and the divides that separate this country. And I want to be part of that too. And for me to be part of it, I have to look in the mirror and I have to say, how am I going to be a better man? How am I going to be a better neighbor? How am I going to be a better citizen? How am I going to be a better American? How can I be a fountain and not a drain? And number three, I know you're not supposed to talk about politics and religion, but we're already talking about politics. So I'm going to go in the R direction too. I never know from one election to the next who's going to be in the Oval Office, but I always know who's who's on the throne. And I'm on this earth because God created me. And that's who I answer to. I'm a Christian. I follow a guy named Jesus. You might have heard of him. And the greatest commandment he ever gave was to love others. And scripture also tells us to pray for our leaders. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for Donald Trump. I'm going to pray for those people right now who feel like they're on the outside looking in, who are afraid at this point. I'll pray for them too. In short, I'm praying for America. And I'm praying that one day we're going to look back and we're going to say, you know what, that Donald Trump presidency, that was all right. But I'm praying. Here's a man who has a platform and he's expressed a beautiful Christian position which is that no matter who is in any position of power, no matter how hopeless we might feel about the current condition of our economy or our country or our workplace or our uh, home life or our roommate situation, wherever we're at, we know who's on the throne. 
And that's what we celebrate at Advent, is that our hope lies not in an office, but in the throne room. And we know who's there. His name is Jesus. You might have heard of him. You should go watch that video if that touched you. The way he talks is even more powerful than hearing it read. But I wanted to share you that because that has always been the cry of the people of God. Is that there is a king who is coming and he will fix many of the things that bring us hopelessness. So if you're with me, let me read Psalm 72 and you'll see this idea put to words. It says this, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures. And as long as the moon throughout all generations, may he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. This is the cry of God's people. This is the cry, this is the picture of the king that we hope for. I just want to point out a few of the words that we see here in this psalm. It says, may he judge. And may he judge with righteousness, which is to say, with a straight path. This is the king that we're looking for. The coming king that we are anticipating. May he bring prosperity for all people. May he defend Protect, advocate those who cannot protect themselves, whether that's those who lack money or power or influence or strength. May He defend them. This King that is coming will deliver, we talked about this last week, save and rescue those who need salvation. He will crush. He will defeat the enemies of goodness. And here's something that's interesting about this king when he comes. Because, right, we can look at each of these verbs and we can hear, even in the political rhetoric of the last 12 months, these same things, right? Judge, prosperity, defend, deliver, crush. But here's something that's interesting about this king. He will put the fear of God into his people. Which is to say that he will put God in the proper place, the proper order of the affections and the authority that he deserves. This is something very unique to this king that comes. That he will draw people again to the proper fear of God, which is reverence for the one true creator God. And this king will bring prosperity through the rain that comes, and beauty and joy will abound. Peace and righteousness will flourish. This is the king that we wait for. This is the king that again and again Scripture talks about that will come. And we hear this rhetoric. We, we know that we long for it because when we hear politicians, businessmen, whoever, whoever it is, promise these things, we see our hearts being drawn towards it. We want it. This is what we want. And all of this framework of hoping, this biblical idea of hoping, this is the framework that we arrive to the Gospels at. That we arrive 
to the coming of Jesus at that we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the framework that we have to understand, that there's a king coming, there's a leader, a leader, there's a Messiah coming, and this is what he will be like. This is where we come. And then onto the scene comes Jesus of Nazareth. Now here's what's interesting. He is different when he first comes than what we expect. And this is here we have the two advents of Jesus. When he comes the first time, he is the suffering servant, and he has already come. But he is not yet the ruling king that we just see longed for in Psalm 72. We call this the already and not yet. Jesus crushes something of our expectations and our hope the first time around because he realizes the selfishness of many of our dreams for that leader. And he shows us that, no, this is a suffering servant. This is what the king will be like. But he says, I'm coming again. And when I come again, I will be all those, I will still be the suffering servant, but all those other things that you long for. It's this not yet arrival that we push into every year when we celebrate Advent right before Christmas. And then on Christmas Day, we'll celebrate the already that the king came the first time in a manger, so humble, coming to serve, not to be served. So as we push into this waiting, knowing the background, knowing who Jesus is, as we push into this waiting and we prepare for his coming, how do we do this well? How do we do this well? Because it's not enough just to know that this is what it represents, but we're called as God's people to wait well and to hope well. And so, as we're waiting, as we're hoping on this second arrival, we need to look to the first arrival and see what was happening right before Jesus came the first time. And so what I want us to do now is turn to Matthew chapter 3, where we'll see what was happening right before Jesus came. Now here's what's interesting. The passage that we'll read will happen after Jesus' birth, but before Jesus starts his public ministry, right? Because Jesus coming as the king, yes, it starts with the incarnation and the womb of Mary and the birth, which we celebrate on Christmas, but then this king, this suffering servant, arrives on the scene when Jesus starts his public ministry. And so what we'll look at is a passage from John the Baptist, who was the cousin of Jesus, who was preparing the way for Jesus, and the way he prepared for him was he would go out to a river, he would call people, he would preach, tell them the kingdom of God is near, and he'd say, repent and be baptized. What an interesting way to prepare for the coming Messiah. So that's what we're going to look at. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1, says this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That means the kingdom of God is here. It's come. For this is who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, and he's talking about himself here, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This is how John understood his task, which was to make a straight path, clear a road, so that when Jesus came, his ministry could be fulfilled to its fullest. This is what John was doing. It says this, verse 4, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Talk about that some other time. <laughs> but it was predicted that this is what the prophet would be like. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all of the region about the Jordan was going out to him. And they were baptized by name in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. It's important. 
But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to be baptized, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as, as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of these trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Let me try to explain to you what's happening here in the context of our discussion on hope. John the Baptist's ministry, you say, well, why, why were so many people going out to him? What, what, what was going on? Why was this so novel? The reason why it was drawing the attention of so many people is that John the Baptist was calling people back to something that had always been a part of the people of God, the people of Israel, but that they had stopped doing, which is repenting, confessing their sins, turning. Now, repentance, uh, the word repentance always means a turn. It's going one way, and I turned another way. So this this includes a change of mind, a change of attitude, and a change of action. And people had stopped doing that. And so John the Baptist's ministry was novel, and people were coming out. What is this guy preaching about? He's calling people to repentance. This was novel. And as I said, it was novel for people to be confessing their sins. Because they had stopped. They had either stopped believing that real forgiveness was possible, or they had stopped believing that sin really mattered. Sound familiar? Oftentimes in our world today, we put sin in quotes. Does sin really matter anymore? Then why confess? Maybe you've stopped confessing your sins. Maybe you never have confessed your sins. Is this because you no longer have hope that forgiveness is possible? That you're too far gone that Jesus could never forgive you for what you've done? That's not true. Confess your sin. Maybe it's because you have a habitual sin. It just keeps coming back up and so you've just gotten tired of asking for forgiveness because you have no hope that you'll ever overcome this. Don't stop confessing your sin. This must be a part of what it means to follow Christ. Now, let's look at John's interaction with the Pharisees to see another very common problem when it comes to hope and repentance. Let me read verses 7 to 10 one more time. But when he, that's John, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, these were the religious leaders of the day. The Pharisees kept the law better than anyone, they were very self-righteous types of people. When he saw them coming to his baptisms, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he says this, Do not presume to say to yourselves, he knows what they're thinking, we don't need repentance. We don't need to confess our sins. Why? Because we have Abraham as our father. This is the thinking. We are, by ethnicity, by religion, people of God, people of Israel, we are children of Abraham. We're good. We're good. It says this. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. <laughs> this, is, this is pretty harsh stuff. He's like, listen, you're not that special. God could turn those stones into children of Abraham if he so desired. 
Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Meaning, yes, you've come up, you've been raised in the people and the line of God, but the axe has come and can chop you down. He's just saying, confess your sin, repent, turn to God. He says, every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit, and he, he pointed out what good fruit looks to him, it is repentance. He says, any tree, any person that does not repent is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now here's what's going on. There is a great misunderstanding when it comes to hope that's caught up in these words. And it's forgetting that what we hope for is in the future. It is something yet to come. Not what has already happened. Now, yes, we look at what has already happened and is part of what gives us confidence to hope in something for the future. But you see what the Pharisees are doing? They're living in the past. They are not looking forward, but they are looking back. Hope is always forward-looking. And so when we hope only in the things of the past... We must repent of that. Repent in trusting in our past accomplishments, our past heritage, our past faith, and turn and trust in the coming hope. This is what I call the danger of nostalgia. And it goes, or it sounds, something like this. Well, I come from a family of ministers. I've got a godly background. Do you know who my grandfather was? He's a great man of faith. You know, when I was in high school, or when I was in college, or when I was right out of college, my faith was strong. You know, I'm an American. God has blessed America. This is God's country. That's what it sounds like. This is the danger of nostalgia. And sometimes you can tell if someone is falling into this danger when the only stories they ever talk about are things that happened way in the past. Maybe the only story they have to tell is the time where they first came to Jesus. Now that's a great moment. It's a great story. But a true relationship has many moments along the way that we should be able to talk about. It's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing relationship. So if I always talked about my relationship with Allie and the only stories I ever told were when we first met and when we first started dating, or maybe the time that I proposed, if, if those are the only stories that I have to tell, you should ask me, how's your marriage doing? You see, we might not be leaning on our connection with Abraham as our father. We might not be leaning on our ethnic identity. We might not be leaning on the great prophets of the past. But many of us lean on our spiritual heritage, and that's where we gain our confidence. Instead of looking to the future, expecting God to come so if we're only looking back, if we're only nostalgic, that's not hope. It's more like a resume. Do you confidently expect the goodness of God in the future? Are you experiencing that hope today? I want you to experience Him in the present. Is it leading you, this hope, to continually be asking for forgiveness, for continually repenting. This is good fruit. If not, repent. Repent of your nostalgia. Repent on hoping on something in the past and turn to hoping on something in the future. Start hoping in Jesus again. That's John's message here. He's looking at the people of Israel. He's looking particularly at the religious leaders of the day and said, stop looking at the good old days. 
because the best days are coming. You're about to meet the Messiah. Are you ready for that? And as Christians in America, we need to do the same thing. It's so easy for us, myself included, to think about those good old days when everybody went to church and when you told people you're a pastor, they didn't run away, but they're like, that's so great. I have a few questions I'd like to talk to you about. It's so easy to do that and just hope for the past to come. There's something new that's happening. There's something new that God's doing in this city. That's what we hope on. That's what we hope for, the new thing that God is doing. Now, the definition, again, is this. Confident expectation that gives you energy today. So hope is not just this irrelevant thing that we want. It actually gives us energy for the day. So godly hope always leads to energy. And godly hope always leads us into the mission of God. And if it's not that, then we question, what kind of hope is this? Now, here's how this works. Let me give you a few examples of how hope gives you energy for today. Many of us, like I said, will struggle with that same sin. We just can't seem to conquer it. And oftentimes, that leads to hopelessness. Now, if we have no hope, if we have no expectation that God can and will come to help, then we will not have energy to keep fighting when that temptation comes. And we will always give in because we do not hope. We think we're in it on our own. But if we have hope, a confident expectation that God is real, that he can come, it gives us a different kind of energy to fight back. And that energy is literally the presence of God, the third person of the Trinity coming to our aid. And so often in my own life, and I know in many of our lives, we do not hope on that. And so we just give in to that. But there's real energy based on the hope in God. Now, many of us also, we doubt what we believe about God. We doubt that there is a God. Maybe you're not yet a Christian and you doubt whether or not Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So glad that you're here. We're so glad that you're wrestling through these things because here's how it works. If you have no hope, no expectation that God can and will bring answers and will bring some level of relief from the doubt, some level of assurance, then you will inevitably have no energy to keep wrestling, to keep researching, to keep reading, to keep talking, to keep coming to church, to press into the doubt. You'll give up because you have no hope that there's nothing else but doubt and questions. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in a sense, but it's just not true. Have hope because Hundreds of thousands, millions of people have been where you're at and thought, maybe I'll never get past this. And now they have assurance. Now it's not full knowledge of everything. We have to have proper expectations. God doesn't give us his mind completely. We cannot have his mind completely. And so we won't have full knowledge of everything, but there is something on the other side of that doubt that is real. I've been on both sides. And if we have hope, then we say, I'm not going to give up. I have real energy. And I think, again, the third person, it's a supernatural energy. The third person of the Trinity will come alongside you and empower you. And he will be with you if you're an honest considerer of the things of God, no matter how long the process takes. And it can take years, decades, even longer. Don't give up. There is real hope, and it will give you energy for the day, uh, for today and tomorrow. I hope you hear that if you're in this place and, and, and you have a lot of doubt and you're not sure where to go. Just hear that. Keep considering. Don't give up. The future is not endless doubt. 
Many of us also get frustrated with people we love who do not yet seem to have faith in God and Jesus Christ. And oftentimes, we look at those people, and I have people in my life that pop into my head right now, we lose hope. And we start to say, maybe God just doesn't care about them. And so we stop praying, we stop inviting, we stop talking about the things of God because we've lost hope. Don't do that. God can and will change even the hardest of hearts. But if we do not have hope that he does that, if we've lost faith that he changes people, then we will have no energy for the task. There's many more examples that we could give about how a lack of hope equals no energy, and hope gives us energy to go on, to continue on. And what we'll see is that hope works both in the micro, at the micro level and at the macro level. And so there could be very small things that we hope for, and it's not bad to, to hope in small things, to pray for small things. But it works on the macro level as well. And so we need to realize this, that our, our today energy is correlated to our hope horizon. So if, we're only, if we have a very short hope horizon, which means we only hope for things uh, that are very close at hand, we will have small energy and we will take small risk. If we are able to foster and nurture in ourselves long horizon, hoping for things far off, God will give us more energy today. He will help us to take larger risks to accomplish these things. Do you see how this works? Let me give you an example here. If the only arrival that I hope for is my pension or my social security, my 401k payout, then I will live a life on that horizon. I'll I'll only see that far. And so I will only have energy to get that far. And I'll risk small because that's my horizon. That's my ultimate hope. Now, if I hope for the arrival of Jesus and the arrival of his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, which again and again Jesus talks about, then I'll live towards that horizon. And that horizon requires much energy and takes much risk. And if you've ever wondered what the name of our church means, Sideris, it's a Latin root of the word consider, and it literally means heavenly body. The other root is with. And so when God gave me this word, I realized what he was asking is, how do we help people to live and think about life on that long horizon with that heavenly body in mind? Not with the earthly body, but with that heavenly body in mind. That changes everything. It changes everything about us. It changes how we make every decision. And I believe if we try and we seek to with our heavenly body, with the heavenly kingdom in mind, if we think on those terms, God will give us a kind of energy for today that allows us to live with very big, impressive hope. And it will be to our benefit, to his glory, and it will draw people to us. So please, who is your God? Is it the government? Is it Jesus? For the, for the people that, that, that Matthew is writing to, is it, is it Rome or is it Jesus? Who's your Lord? Is it Caesar? Is it Jesus? And when we answer those questions right and we say it's Jesus, he's the king that we've been waiting for and we're waiting for him to arrive again and to establish his kingdom. When we realize this, that he's coming again, we repent of all those smaller things that we've hoped in. We repent of any cynicism that we have about what God can actually do. We need to repent of living based on nostalgia and not on the future. We need to repent of loving life more, this life more than the kingdom of Jesus' life. 
We need to repent of living for ourselves only, hoping for ourselves only, and start hoping for others as well. Because Jesus coming again is not just for us. It's for a putting back together of everything that He has created, bringing it into its fullness. Everything will be restored. Start repenting and start hoping again. Hope in God, the only one outside of our problem of sin. We hope in Jesus, God come to earth. We hope in the cross, Jesus dealing with our real problem, the problem that affects everyone and everything by sacrificing his life for our sin. And we hope in the resurrection, that the cross did not end Jesus' story, that death doesn't have to end our story, that resurrection, Jesus' resurrection in space-time history is the picture of hope that we long for. And Jesus is that first fruit of the resurrection that we too will experience if we are connected to Him. And then we hope, not just in God, not just in Jesus, not just in the cross, not just in the resurrection, but we hope in the second coming. Because the second coming goes beyond the individual to the fullness of all things and all history as God brings it back together. This is what we hope for. This is the hope that the people of God have. Do you have this hope? If not, pray that God would open your eyes to hope in this way. That he'd give you new horizon, that he'd give you bigger hope. A hope that is worthy of the King. The King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this truth that we are created in your image, that you have not left us alone, that you have come to fix our problem which we could not fix ourselves, that by grace you have saved us through faith as we connect ourselves to you by trusting in your promises, trusting in your goodness, and then you give us hope that we might expect great things from you, that we might look forward to your literal, physical return to earth when you establish your new kingdom and put all things back as you intend. We thank you for that. We pray for eyes of faith, for our hope to be increased, to be built up so that it is ready for your coming. We pray this all because of Jesus. Amen.